it's your pal Siri. You have found the Ambiguously Blind Podcast, where we are challenging beliefs and revealing abilities that make people extraordinary. With your host, a guy that's great at hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, 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 greetings. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting the podcast experience. Just in case you're keeping score at home, this is number 63. And if you haven't heard any other ones, um, you've got some work to do. There's a catalog of episodes in the hopper here. You can go to ambiguouslyblind.com or find us on any podcast platform and go through the catalog. We've talked to a lot of interesting people, and we're going to find another one of them today who is a fellow podcaster named Chad Bhutan. He is the host of the Hindsight is 2200 podcast. And I've not been following Chad for long because he hasn't been out for that long so far, but he has he has gone on a tear and is just producing all kinds of great content. And uh, Chad's a guy with uh, retinitis pigmentosa. So I'm going to check in with Chad. We're going to step into his studio, see what's going on, talk a little bit about RP and his experience, and then find out a little bit more about Hindsight is 2200. Hey, Chad, thanks for joining the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to uh, be able to talk to you today. Yeah, it's not the first time we've chatted. We chatted for an episode of your podcast as well, which I think will be forthcoming. You're a podcaster. Hindsight yes. is 2200, right? Yes, there you go. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people want to like just reflex, like reflex say, oh, 2020. But I'm like, no, no, 2200. Yeah, because it's, it's a play on, yeah, I gotcha. You know, yeah, yeah, the, the yeah. VIP community, I think, gets that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you know it, it's great that they do get that because when, when I when I named the podcast, of course, that's probably the hardest part when it comes to a podcast is coming up with a name that's going like, to kind of stand out and people are going to recognize and that haven't already been used. And uh, I just thought twenty hindsight is twenty slash two hundred would be fun because it's always been a joke between my dad and I. He would always say, "Well, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I'm like. Not for me. It's always going to be 2,200 or worse because that's my vision. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Yeah. So we're going to talk about your podcast here in a little bit, but um, let's talk about the reason your vision or your hindsight is 2,200. Uh, <laughs> retinitis pigmentosa, right? Yes. Yeah, you're no stranger to that. And you've been, let's see, when did you when did you discover RP? Is there anything in that like that in your family? Yeah, so the, the, the funny thing is, is both of my parents are recessive carriers. So, of course, for those that know anything about genetics, you know, basically they have the disease or the, the ability to pass it on, but they themselves do not suffer from it because of it being recessive. So it just so happened that my mom and dad meet, have two kids, and then bum bum, genetic lottery, both my sister and I end up with um, retinitis pigmentosa. And we've done genetic counseling. We've been, you know, mapped, you know, so we've had everything entered into databases. And we went to Iowa and we looked through all of our family trees and nowhere else could they find anyone that had anything in terms of RP, just my mom and dad. And then, of course, my sister and I, who, of course, we inherited the genes from my mom and dad. Wow. That is pretty uh, interesting that. Yeah. There that wow. Well, we get you know we get everything from our parents, so <laughs> yeah. that's how it works. Uh, now, is your sister older or younger than you? So my sister is actually only about fourteen months 
um, younger than me. So wow, that was quick. Yeah, yeah. I know my mom and dad. They honestly, they only dated for about six months. Knew that it was meant to be. Got married, and then you know, start the family. After, yeah, go. a little bit after. Yeah, um, had me and my sister, and then um, you know, we moved around a little bit because of my dad being in the military. But in terms of vision. My mom and dad knew at least with me there was always something very very wrong with my vision. Hmm. What at what age do you think they determined it for the first time? I can't remember. I know it was very early in my childhood. I would say maybe like four to five. Um, in the in in the first, you know, they, of course they just think, oh, he just needs glasses because my mom always tells about how when I was a little kid she would read me the storybooks and she would show me the pictures. But I would always grab at the book because I needed it right in front of my face because I couldn't see them. So, of course, they're like, oh, well, you know, maybe he has some vision problems, so he just needs to get put to glasses. But over time, it's just, you know, you keep going to your regular annual eye doctor appointments and the doctors are telling you that your vision keeps getting worse and worse. And then eventually you finally kind of find the right doctor that can diagnose you correctly. but Prior to being officially diagnosed with RP, um, I was misdiagnosed at least twice with uh, Lieber's optic. Um, doctors thought I might have uh, Lieber's, but of course, it ends up that it's actually retinitis pigmentosa. So from a very early age, doctors and my parents at least knew, you know, there's got to be something more when it comes to Chad's vision. And was it easier for them to detect that in your sister being younger? So funny enough is they, we, we, so I was 11 and my sister was 10 and we were both diagnosed with RP at the same time on the same day. Basically we went in for a routine um, ophthalmologist appointment and our doctor was looking back in the eye. And of course he starts to know, notice some of the peppering in terms of what's happening with the retina, some cloudiness. And, you know, he's of course concerned, uh, but you know, he can't diagnose it himself, so he referred us to a retinologist, and we went there maybe a couple weeks, maybe a month after the ophthalmologist appointment, did the appointment, and then I don't even remember how long it was after we did the appointment, but my mom gets a telephone call from the doctor, and he's telling her right then and there that both of her kids uh, have RP. So what do you remember your vision being like at age 11 when that, when that happened? It was actually really good. Um, you know, funny enough is even though I continued to lose my vision because, of course, RB, RB, RP is a progressive disease, um, it gets worse over time. So, you know, as the years go by, you can have dramatic or just very slight dips in your vision. Just really depends on how your RP progresses. So it's funny to me because I feel like I've lived on both sides of the coin. Like I can remember having perfect vision, being able to walk around on my own, be able to go outside late at night where it was dark, you know, play video games on my own, know what colors I'm looking at, um, see social cues like people changing their faces, hands, you know. And then I know the other side because, you know, nowadays my vision is to the point where uh, I use screen readers, I use magnifiers with OCR. I have to use my guide dog who I've had since 2014 because without him, I can't walk outside on my own without hurting myself. So 
you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I would say up until I was 21, I had functional vision to the point where I could be independent on my own. And then once I turned 21, that was kind of where everything started to really go downhill dramatically. And at 21, that's when I went and got my guide dog because I knew from then on, I was going to need a lot more assistance when it came to my vision. But was there a progression between 11 and 21 through that 10 years? Did it, was there noticeable changes to you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think like the first thing that stands out was both my sister and I were told, uh, I would have been 15, she would have been 14, that we can't drive. So from 11 to 15, so that's about, you know, four years, three years for my sister. I don't know, four years for her too as well. But, uh, you know, you go from maybe I can drive to doctors saying, no, you can't drive. Um, and then you start being able to, okay, well, I'm going to go outside at, say, 7.30, play basketball with my friends. And then a couple of years later, you're like, I can't go outside because I can't see when it's getting dark anymore. Um, and I can't even see the basketball anymore. So I can't even play basketball if I wanted to. So, you know, you just started to notice slight little changes like that. Um, and yeah, once I was in like, I think it was ninth or 10th grade, that's when I really started to lose a lot of my vision. And that's when I started to get more serious when it came to my cane training, um, as well as learning other like daily living skills and, um, um, braille. Where were you living at this time? What state? Um, Florida. So, uh, I, I was born and raised in Florida. Okay. Does Florida have a pretty good program for the, like in tech, I live in Texas. It's called the commission for the blind. Actually, it's not, mm-hmm. it's something different now, but there's a government, a state agency that helps with outreach and mm-hmm. O&M, um, orientation mobility and things like that. Does Florida do that as well? Yeah. So we have two different organizations. Um, one is the DBS, which is division of blind services. And then we have the Lighthouse of the Blind. Now, it just depends on where you are living. Your town or city might have it, or it might be, you know, nearby. For me, funny enough, um, the most nearest organization was the DBS in Pensacola, and that was about an hour's drive away. (laughs) So my town didn't have an actual branch or organization that could really assist me. However, when I went through middle school and high school, the state, of course, assigned me a TVI, which uh, is a teacher of visually impaired and an O&M instructor. So I did learn how to use a cane as well as Braille and a number of other things like low vision technology at the time and how to kind of adapt and, and accommodate myself when it came to my vision. And I would honestly say I kind of was failed by the DBS because I didn't even know about the Division of Blind Services or Lighthouse of the Blind until I was almost out of college. So, yeah, I, I feel like I really didn't get a lot of assistance as I should have um, as I was growing up. Uh, mostly, it kind of was my family and friends that helped me adjust and, you know, reach out and find things on my own. And uh, I feel maybe things could have been a little bit smoother of a transition as my vision got worse if I had known about the DBS. But um, overall, I just, you know, I feel kind of like they they failed me. Mm, That's not good. Mm. That's not good. Now, what about the accommodations that you said middle school and into high school? Were there were the schools pretty good about accommodating things? Oh, yeah. I mean, they they, they were great. I mean, honestly, 
for me, <laughs> you know, because it can be very embarrassing or just like your your own ego can get in the way of asking for help at such a young age. And there can also be a lot of ignorance if you're diagnosed very young. Like for me, when I was first diagnosed, being told that I had RP meant nothing to me. I just felt, okay, well, cool. Um, I'm just going to go play with my friends. I don't know what this has to do with me. And then it wasn't until I actually started really noticing those dips in high school where I'm like, okay, this is really a serious lifelong, you know, affliction that I'm going to have to deal with for the rest of my life. So middle school was great. That's when I got introduced to O&M and um, my um, Braille teacher, as well as the teacher that helped me get magnifiers. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of OCR or, uh, you know, these amazing, you know, magnifiers and AI cameras that we have nowadays. So I had just actual magnifiers and like a telescope that would help me to zoom into the whiteboard in, in the class. And of course, would sit in the, the front of the, the classroom because that's how I could see the board easier. Always had, you know, large text. If I needed it, you know, I could get things electronically. So the schools were very good with accommodating me. And uh, I honestly feel they did a great job. What, did the kids take it easy on you, or they uh, did they think it was cool that you had a telescope? <laughs> um, I, I funny, you know, some people thought my cane because I I have a collapsible um, white tip cane. They thought they were drumsticks. So like, oh, I didn't know you played drums. And then I would pull it out and just like, it's a cane. <laughs> so you know, um, I wasn't really bullied that much. I definitely feel people didn't know how to interact with me because where I grew up, it's a very small town. And my sister and I, at least for the time when we were growing up as kids, we were really the only ones that had a progressive eye disease. So we knew what, what was going on and we, you know, we're dealing with it as a family with our friends, but everyone at school didn't really know what was going on because to them, the understanding is, oh, if, if you have, if you're going blind, then you should already be blind. Like you shouldn't be able to see anything at all. You shouldn't be able to say, well, you know, I'm legally blind, but that doesn't mean I don't see anything at all. So it was very hard for kids to understand the the idea that vision is on a spectrum. They kind of just thought, well, you can either see or you can't. And if you can't, you get some, get some glasses and everything will be fine, right? Yeah. And you know, there, there were people that they thought I was faking. Basically, sure, uh, yeah. a lot of people would call me out and say that I'm faking. And, you know, as a, as a kid growing up, that's not what you want to hear because yeah. as the person's going through, it's just like, well, if, if if you only knew. But I didn't let that get to me because I had a, a group of really good friends that they knew they knew how to handle me. Like they would let me grab onto them and walk with me. If there was something that I couldn't see, they would read it for me. So I, I had a really good group of friends that didn't treat me any different because of my visual impairment and that's all I needed. So to me, it didn't matter that, you know, a hundred plus kids in the school had no idea what was going on with me. I only needed the three friends that knew what was going on and how to just treat me like everybody else. And, you know, to me, that's what mattered more. It sounds like it was you and your sister were probably the only ones at your school with that, with some sort of impairment like that. Yeah, um, you know, a lot of what I, I, at least what I saw personally in terms of interactions was, you know, motor neural, um, cognitive, um, perhaps sensory. 
um, some auditory, but very rarely. If and for me, at not at all. But I never saw another visually impaired student when I went through middle and high. I don't know about my sister, but I I would assume she would echo um, the same sense of it. Was it good to have your sister along for the ride with you? You guys bounce things off each other. <laughs> I, you know, I hate she had to join me on this journey because as the older brother, I hate to know that she struggled so much and we handled it completely different. Um, I was always the one that would ask up front, say, hey, I need help. I need this accommodation. You know, I need extended time. And hey, I'm legally blind. You know, I was never afraid of admitting it. My sister was the complete opposite. Um, she never liked to admit she was losing her vision. So she would purposely fail her classes because she didn't want to ask for help. And whenever the TVI or the O&M instructors would come, she would only do it because she was required to, but she never retained anything. She never, you know, sat down to actually learn from them at the time. So for me, I think it was good for me to have it with along with her because I could help her through the grief and the denial and I, I know, you know, she's told me that I've always been like the perfect example of how to kind of navigate it. And I never really set out to do that for her. But it makes me happy knowing that I could be there for her because she really did have a hard time with her um, experience, you know, growing up with retina and spigmatosa. Yeah, well, that's what big brothers do, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what we're there for. That's what we're there for. Yeah. Have you ever driven? I drove once, <laughs> and uh, it was in a very big open country field on the land that my grandma and my grandpa owned, and it was leading up to me maybe trying to get my driver's permit, yeah. and my dad always jokes and says, well, it's a good thing that you weren't able to drive because you did not do a good job of that day, <laughs> uh, so maybe a blessing in disguise that I'm not on the road. Yeah, sounds like it. So my visual change occurred when I was ni age 19. And for me, I, I had bacterial meningitis and mm -hmm. uh, one day everything's okay. And then I'm in a coma for seven days. I wake up and everything's not okay. And that's where my, right. my change happened. So at age 19, I was almost 20. So I'd driven for a little over four years between 16 mm -hmm. and almost 20. So I, I know what that's like and I should <laughs> like it. And I don't, I haven't driven since uh, my, my vision changed with one exception I was in college when it, when it happened and one of my roommates was really into cars and he would, he fixes cars. Yeah. He races cars and he just, he, he loves cars, everything about cars. Mm -hmm. And so near the campus where we were, there was a, uh, old, uh, air force base, um, mm -hmm. that was not being used anymore. I think they used like the buildings for something else, but the, they had, so they had these landing strips, these long paved, you know, landing strips. Mm -hmm. And so we went out there, uh, he went out there a few times and would like, I guess it was open and they could just, you know, drop the hammer and, and go really fast on these, right. these strips. So he takes me out there one day and <laughs> I got his car going a little over a hundred miles an hour, uh, in the driver's seat, um, which was pretty, uh, exhilarating and yeah. terrifying at the same time. <laughs> So yeah. luckily it was a straightaway and we didn't have to do any <laughs> turning and had a lot of room to go and the, the car was super fast. So it got to a hundred mm -hmm. pretty quick, but, uh, I was in the driver's seat and he was in the passenger seat and, uh, <laughs> uh that was kind of fun. 
hopefully that's a ride he's never forget um forgotten about i i we still talk about it so <laughs> Uh, and quite honestly, I'm not sure we were supposed to be on the on the Air Force Base either. So that kind of makes it a little bit of, you know, adds a little element of yeah, uh, yeah. craziness to it also. So that was fun. But <laughs> that was the last time I drove. And I really, really wouldn't count that as, as driving. I do ride a bike. I, mm-hmm. I have enough vision. I have about 2300 vision in my left eye. I have mm-hmm. zero in my right eye. So is, is your clinical vision about 2200? Is that what it is currently or so my my total overall visual acuity in terms of prescription is about 2500 okay and that's i mean that's just a number too because what that right, means right. to you and what that means to me and what that means to right, right. can be totally different the experience yeah. mm-hmm. um the, the vision in my left eye is a lot worse than my right eye um so i can see a lot better out of my right eye than i can my left eye i think believe the terms of the field of vision on my left eye is just a little more narrow. So I see a lot less out of it than what I can see in my right eye. And I also feel that the cataract in my left eye, which I know for a fact is also worse than the one in my right eye, also contributes to me having worse vision. So there are days where I have no problems, everything's clear, and then all of a sudden the left eye just starts acting up and getting fatigued. And then my vision becomes very, very blurry, almost like I'm seeing, like I can see two of everything. So it's, it's a lot to manage. And I just have to, you know, be conscious of maybe eye strain and fatigue and know when I should rest. Yeah. So does that mean you just shut things down and just kind of close your eyes and. Yeah. I'll be watching like a tele, cause I can still see TV, um, you know, not very well, but I can see it enough and I can see stuff on, you know, my phone when it comes to YouTube videos. And then all of a sudden I'll notice, like I'll start seeing it happen. And then I'll, you know, try to clear my eyes a little bit, you know, close them, rotate them while they're closed. And then if I notice that it's still just remaining there and nothing's getting better, that's when I'm just, all right, turn this off, turn that off. Um, maybe listen to some music or a podcast and then just don't even try to look at a screen with images on it. Mm-hmm. So what kind of advice would you give your nine, 10 or 11 year old self if you could look back and, cause I think that's kind of what you said where, where things kind of started changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you tell yourself at that now that uh, you wish you'd known then? I mean, I, I, for me, I think I would just tell myself to, to one, you know, don't don't give up. Um, I know it's going to get hard, and things are going to seem like they they're never going to get better. Um, but you know, things do eventually get better if you continue to try and get back up every time you're knocked down. So one, you know, just don't give up, and two, learn to love yourself. Um, I think that's the biggest thing that I would love to tell my younger self is because I was in the mindset so much of I want to be normal. I don't want to have a disability. I hate my disability. I hate myself for being disabled. I hate the fact I can't do everything because I'm disabled. And that contributed to a lot of mental illness. And I've struggled for a very long time with depression, social anxiety disorder, um, just emotional turmoil. And I think that was just for me, just really getting in my head too much and just thinking of, I hate this, I hate that. Um, I can't do this because of my disability. If I didn't have my disability, I'd be so much better. And I just think I needed to really learn to love myself. And of course, that does take time. 
and I just wish, you know, I could be there to tell myself if you can only just start loving yourself and loving your disability, as weird as that may sound to people, if you will get a better and a more positive outlook on life. And I think the big thing is I would just tell myself, make your disadvantage your advantage. You have to find a way to make this disability something beautiful about your life. And if you can find a way to harness it and use it for good, then you're going to be happy that you have to be a disabled person because disability doesn't mean it's the end of your life. It can be if you let it, but if you, like I said, turn that disadvantage into an advantage, then not only do you change your life, but you can change others. Yeah. Beautiful. Well-spoken. And maybe a third piece of advice you would have given yourself was start a podcast, right? (laughs) Maybe. Definitely. I would have told myself to do it a lot sooner because I I definitely feel that I started later than I've that I probably should have. <laughs> yeah, so what, why did you start? What was the genesis behind starting the podcast? Other than, other than the fact that everybody and their mom has one now, I mean, not, <laughs> not to diminish yours or mine, but it's obviously yeah. pretty vogue anyway, but like you're, you're sitting there and you're thinking, I need a podcast. I, I'm going to do this. What, what, what happened? So I've always loved the idea of content creation. Like I've always loved YouTubers. Um, so I've always loved let's plays. I've loved, you know, meme videos and just, you know, buying stuff. And I've always loved personalities. So like for me, I've always really loved like the radio personality, like the, the disc jockey per se. I've always just really loved those people and the, you know, what they bring to the program and how they can kind of shape what really is just you listening to music and make it a lot better and even more fun. So to me, I've always loved the aspect of just creating something, but also having the personality and the voice behind it as well. But I never set out to do anything. I honestly would have never, if you told me like a couple years ago, like, Chad, you're going to have a podcast. I would have like, no, I'm not. Because I just can't imagine that actually happening to me. But really what caused me to finally start looking at having a podcast was that I lost my job to the pandemic. Of course, you know, uh, a lot of people lost their, you know, professions due to the pandemic just because of the budget cuts and things that had to change. Everything started shifting from in-person to remote. So maybe now they don't even need you there for what your job was doing, or it's not even in the cars. Maybe they're not doing public fundraisers anymore. It's just going to be all virtual. So that's kind of what happened to me. I was working at an organization here in South Florida called Southeastern Guide Dogs, which just so happens to be the organization I got my guide dog Andrews from back when I was 21. And I was a philanthropist. So I raised money for the organization by putting on public events. And, you know, I, I did a pretty good job. I raised a lot of money for the organization. But of course, COVID comes along and everybody gets laid off or furloughed. And then the conversation started to be, well, are we even going to want to bring Chad back in because of all the money that we've lost due to the public events not being held? You know, are we restructuring the the department that he's in? And eventually I just asked them, like, do I need to be looking somewhere else? Like, is there even a possibility that I'm coming back? And my boss was very kind to me to say, I probably would start looking somewhere else. So I lost my job in last year. And I had to work as a janitor for about six months just to pay bills. And I absolutely hated it because it's not that I don't think being a janitor or custodian is good work. It's just it wasn't self-fulfilling. You know, 
the Southeastern Guide Dogs, I was directly helping people who are also visually impaired get the keys to their freedom like I did back when I was 21. So I couldn't do that as a janitor. And I was just really depressed. I just felt like my life was falling apart because here I am riding high, raising all this money, going to corporate organizations and offices, and then bam, you're a janitor. And I just started to try to find some way to get rid of that depression and cope um, for the time being. And the way that I started doing that was that I started playing games again. Uh, I've loved video games from a very young age. And I just wanted to continue to do that even as I lose my vision. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I can start doing YouTube now that I have a lot of time on my hands. And I had a friend who was a photographer who knew things about video and uh, audio, you know, not as much as others do, but he had an understanding of what the equipment I would need would be. So he helped me get started and we tried doing a YouTube channel for about a year, but it really didn't go anywhere. But in the meantime, I started reaching out to publications to ask if I could write articles for them about disabled gamers and what accessibility looks like for video games right now. So how is the industry helping those that are disabled to continue playing games? And I was able to publish a couple articles. Um, the big one was for Nintendo Life, which is a very well-known um, publication out of the UK that, you know, it's been around for many years. And then that led to the RNIB, which is the Royal National Institute of Blind People, um, their Connect Radio out of the UK. They came across my article and they asked me, would you like to come on to our program and talk about your article? And once I did that, they kept asking me, like, hey, do you want to talk about this? What if we created a Christmas list for accessible games? Do you want to do that? And they kept feeding me more and more work in terms of being live and recording stuff. And I really, really liked it. And I had a lot of fun. And, you know, of course, I wanted to continue that. So in March of this year, I finally decided that I didn't really like the inner politics of being a journalist. And I said, you know what, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to do broadcasting and radio like I was for the RNIB Connect Radio. And that's when I said, I'm going to start the podcast. And bam, March of 2022, started the podcast. And boom, you definitely <laughs> went out with a bang because uh, as of the time of this, just before September 2022, you're, what have you done, like 600 episodes on <laughs> No, uh, I, I'd be dead if because <laughs> I would never sleep if I did that many. Um, people always comment on that. They're like, okay, so you're not even a year in. Because keep in mind, you know, March 2022. So this year, I've only been doing it for that long. And I already have 56 episodes that have been published. That always like blows people's minds. So like, do you ever sleep? Are you recording all day, every day? And my thing is, it's not sustainable for sure. It's like you can't build a career off of working that hard. I mean, some can, but eventually I feel like a lot of this burnout, which definitely I was starting to burn out. But the reason I did it is because I knew, you know, it's not as niche anymore. There's a lot of people, amazing people, advocates who are disabled that are doing the same thing. And I knew that if I didn't start and right out the gate, just doing as much as I could, just grinding as hard as I could, putting in all the hours that it were possible. I, I felt like I personally had to try and outwork my competition or my peers. 
And, you know, I've always believed that I can outwork people if I'm motivated about something. And this was something that I was personally motivated about. So I sought out a lot of guests and it was amazing of how many of them would say yes to me because I thought I was going to get so many no's, but was just so over, just blown over just by how many people would want to come on the show. And then, yeah. Season one had 50 episodes, and I don't even know how I did it. <laughs> well, it's amazing. I applaud you. It's great. Um, I, I subscribe to you, uh, your your podcast as well and uh, appreciate what you're doing. I, I At some point, you'll you'll hit the wall, I guess, but I, I, I'd say just keep going because you never yeah. know. The thing for me when I started was uh, I just wanted to connect with people, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if you and I or you and any of the people that I've uh, connect that I didn't know. I don't know that we would really be chatting otherwise. Right. right it's kind of yeah. weird to just call somebody up and <laughs> start chatting about things. Right. Yeah. So no. It's, it's, it's networking, it's connecting, mm-hmm. it's, it's finding people. There are so many incredible stories mm-hmm. in this world. I don't yeah. mean to diminish any of them. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of times they, they don't get known because people either don't, don't know to talk about them or they don't mm-hmm. want to talk about them. Not that they, not that they don't want to talk about them. They're just like, mm-hmm. I don't think this is interesting, but there right. really are a lot of interesting, intriguing, inspiring stories that are are right there and you just got to find them. So I, I think the more, the more podcasts, the better, the more shows, mm-hmm. YouTube, whatever, because it, it just, it's bringing stuff out of the woodworks that I mm-hmm. don't know that we would have had a chance to hear otherwise. Yeah. And that's what I, I love the most is for me, I've always been a big like pay it forward, always show love. And the one thing that I love the most, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love, I love to talk. <laughs> yeah, I kind of gathered that though. I mean, you can't you can't do that much podcasting if you're if you're if you're not liking to talk. Um, yeah. yeah, but the, the thing is, that I love to talk to other people about their stories, and I, I'm learning just as much as my audience is learning. I mean, there have been many episodes where I've walked away and been like, wow. I'm so happy I had this guest on because I learned so much today. And that's the beautiful thing is I feel like I become a better advocate and I even come to understand disability even better. I feel like I've learned more about not just my disability, but the other disabilities that are out there. Because when I first started, I was just going to focus on visual impairment, but I wanted to talk about other ones because I was curious and I wanted to learn about them. So. I open it up to just all of disability and I'm so happy I did because I've talked to so many amazing people that otherwise I wouldn't have talked to. And I, I, I'll get those too. Like I'll have guests being like, I, I don't think I'm right for your podcast. I'm like, well, why? Like, I don't think I have a good story. And I'm like, I want to be talking to you, but I didn't think you were interesting or had an awesome story. So it's just, I feel sometimes maybe people just don't think they have a story worth sharing. And that's where, you and I can come in and be like, no, trust me, you have a story worth sharing and I want to share it. And that's what I love a lot as well. I've found the same thing to be true. Who's the, uh, the first guest you got or person that agreed to, to come on that you're like blown away? Like, wow. Okay. I, I assumed that would be a no or a no response, but they said <laughs> yes. Like what's going on here? There's a couple, to be honest, like season one was crazy. The, the, like the guest I had on there, I'm just like, how in the world is this even happening? Um, I, I would just quickly go through the four that really flabbergasted me. First was Sam Seavey of The Blind Life. Sam has 
been a big inspiration for me. Back when I was still working as a janitor at the reemployment office after losing my job to COVID, his was the first video I saw in terms of an advocate using his voice in a positive way. And it was his video on the camp. And I saw his video and then I just started just binge watching all of his content. And I was just so enthralled with what he was doing. And I'm just like, man, this looks like the life. And I would love to do something like this. So that was a big, you know, I can't believe he said yes to me. Like Sam was hands down, like one of the guests where I'm just like, I can't believe he's coming on my show. Mm-hmm. Two Blind Brothers was another one. I was super impressed that they would want to work with me. And eventually we even worked further on a number of other stuff together. And it was just amazing to see how much they believed in my experience and what I could offer to the community. So they were another one where I was really surprised that they would say yes to me. There's a a voice actor that has voiced in video games, movies, animation. Her name is Amanda Winley. And I've been a big fan of hers for a very long time. And I did not think she was going to say yes to me. And she even said, usually I would say no to a request like this. But because it's you um, and how we've interacted together on Twitter, I'll come on your show. So, yes. And that was like real big for me. And then the last one was I had um, a UFC fighter. His name is Alan the Talent Belcher. And he fought against just top-level competition for his entire career. And I literally just DM'd him once because I knew about his story. He actually nearly lost his vision due to a detached retina that he suffered in a fight. Um, So I wanted to talk to him about that and how it was like to kind of be like, okay, can I even continue my career because of my vision? And to literally have a UFC fighter, one that I watched growing up fight, you know, these people that I, I still watch to this day, that was a real big one. Like I remember screaming in my room around midnight and my sister being like, what the hell are you doing? And I, just, <laughs> like, I just got a UFC fighter on my show. So those are like four, like, like off the top of my head where I was just like, how do these people want to come on my show? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's cool. And that doesn't diminish any of my guests because I love every single guest that's come on. You're just as important no matter how big or small you may think you are, um, I love all our interactions. So I, you know, I just want to make that clear that that yeah, does not sure. diminish any of my guests because every guest that I have on is amazing and uh, a, you know, a great time to have. Yeah. I and mean, that was season one. Season two is uh, just been put in the books and I know you had some, <laughs> some technical issues there. <laughs> which cut, cut that one short a little bit. That doesn't begin to explain the pain. But those those kind of things happen. That's uh, that's life in the fast lane, right? I think it was a good lesson to learn. You know, things seem great when they're going good, and you feel great when you're riding high. But that's life. Sometimes things are going to be bad, and there's going to be drops when there's you know ups. So you know, ups and downs always happen. So I think it was good for me because don't get me wrong, I was so upset when I lost all those episodes, I, I literally lost 18 episodes of content. Yeah, for those who don't know, uh, you had your episode stored and the hard drive crash or there was a transfer that went wrong and then everything yeah. just goes by and there's, yep. if it was 18 episodes, assuming they're about an hour a piece, that's mm-hmm. 
that's at least, uh, I'm guessing 36 hours of your, mm-hmm. your life that, um, yeah. probably just went out the window just or in the cyberspace. Yeah. Yeah. And I was so upset and there was times where I thought, you know, maybe I can come back because earlier in the season I was having Wi-Fi problems with my setup and I just kept going on hiatus. Like season two was really bad for me personally because I felt like, all right, I can start now. Nope, I can't start. Okay, maybe, nope. What about now? Nope, okay. It was just a continue, continuous cycle of can I return? No, yes, no. And then eventually it's just a straight up no because I've lost 18 episodes. And I'll, I'd be lying if I didn't say I started doubting, like, can I come back from this? But then, you know, I had Sam CV, Two Blind Brothers, the Seesaw podcast that I've become super close friends with. Just all these people that have been listening, telling me, say, hey, man, you're going to be back. You're going to be better than ever. You know, don't let this get you down. And it was just so therapeutic because I'm like, oh, wow. So the work that I've already done has really made an impact. And these people that are supporting it, the podcast that is, they they want it. And they're going to be there no matter what. And they'll wait. And they'll be there when I return. So I think that was a great lesson for me. As as bad as it, and as much as it sucked, um, I think it was good for me because it re- made me realize that what I'm doing, the people support it and they love me for it. So I think that was important to learn. Yeah, I think you're right. It's also a life lesson where, you know, things happen uh, that are out of our, our control sometimes and you got to, you got to keep moving, but you're no stranger to that. Uh, (laughs) Working with RP since age 11, um, you know that not everything is perfect and that uh, there oftentimes need to be accommodations and, and you gotta, Mm -hmm. you gotta find ways to do things differently. Yeah. Yeah. For me, there was a time in my life where I wanted to stop, where I felt, okay, I'm going to tap out on life because just nothing's going my way. I don't feel like I can, you know, find somewhere I belong. And I really didn't think I'd be here today still because of all that I went through. And there were times in my life where I really thought that today's going to be the day where, you know, I'm gone. And I'm happy that didn't happen because none of this would be able to have happened. And I wouldn't have been able to experience it and know what I could do and how I could use my disability. Again, I, I feel once I learned how to make my disadvantage into advantage, that's when I really started living. And that's why I'll always say the greatest thing that ever happened to me, honestly, is that, uh, I lost my job to the COVID pandemic (laughs) because uh, ever since I started doing journalism and broadcasting, I feel I have finally found what I'm supposed to do with my life. And it has just been the greatest, most rewarding experience that I'm happy to continue living with. That's tremendous. Yeah. There is light at the end of the tunnel. You may have to go a little further down to see it, but, um, but it's there. Mm -hmm. All right, so season three is coming forthwith, I presume, sometime pretty soon? Yes, yes. So I think I'm going to wait maybe a little bit longer because, again, I, I um, by the time we're, you know, this is out, you know, season yeah, this two. Is, will, this is the end of August. Yeah, season two will have been over for, you know, a while now. So it it might come back in October. I think maybe October might be a good time to come back. Give me a little bit of 
time to figure some more things out because I do have other commitments that are starting to pop up that I would like to say yes to. But I have recorded some episodes, or I should say recorded because I have this whole lot of recording. So season three will have a lot of the guests that were supposed to have been in season two. Um, the first episode of season three will feature Renee of Cooking Without Looking, which is a TV program that features visually impaired just people in general. It doesn't matter if you're an engineer creating a low vision device, you know, but it does focus on those that are have actually living with visual impairments. But, you know, your job could be anything. It just, you come on, you talk, and she actually has, is trying to work on getting like a Netflix or a Hulu to help her do her show. And the vision is to have basically three sighted chefs basically be blindfolded and then have a visually impaired person who knows how to cook and knows how to navigate a kitchen, coach them through a dish. So she's trying to get that picked up. But in the meantime, she highlights people on her podcast who are visually impaired and then she makes you share a recipe that you love. So when I was on the, on the podcast, I shared my recipe for homemade chicken noodle soup. But um, this time she will be on my podcast and I'll be talking to her. And that'll be the first episode of season three. Great. Looking forward to it, man. You got a supporter in me. I appreciate what you're doing. Keep on going. And uh, just 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 keep going, man. You, you might hit a wall, but just, just <laughs> jump over it. And uh, it's just like a hurdle. Just jump over. Keep going. We'll link to your podcast in the show notes and ways for people to contact you. Chad, it's been a lot of fun, man. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you so much, John. I I really appreciate it. I I love what you do. I support you 100%. So just thank you for being you and doing all that you do. So just thank you so much. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe and connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.